As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the Phil Hayes Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, alongside me from The Square Ball is Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic, of course, Phil Hay. Hello. Sign up now for The Athletic, 33% off the full price of a sub, all the analysis, the features, the best team of football writers anywhere, ad-free versions of these podcasts as well. It's at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of the offer. What can we find this week, Phil? Uh, we've done coverage of the story about 49ers Enterprises, which people know we ran at the beginning of the week. There's a piece about Yusuke Idiguchi, who I can just about pronounce and is looking like he's off the Celtic. So back to Europe for a second bash after that that failed move to Leeds. And I've also written about Victor Orta um, after his histrionics at the end of the Brentford game. I dare say we'll get into both of those. Part two will be about the 49ers Enterprises takeover. Will they, won't they? Your spat. Is it a spat? Does it count as a spat? I'd yeah. say so. Yeah. Well, that, that could be the first question we ask in part two then. Yeah, let's, go on. Let's do part one first then, where we look back on the last week into the football and Brentford and the 95th minute equaliser. Should we have won that game? That game must have perfectly captured the entire season, I think. There the, were periods in it when Leeds had it under control when they looked good, when it looked like it was their game to win. There were periods where it was completely out of control, particularly around the time of the Phillips injury and the two Brentford goals. They were almost fully fit at the start of the game and then they were absolutely not fully fit by the end of it. There was a goal right at the end which completely changed the mood of the place and again made you feel like it had it'd been almost a, a considerably better result than it actually was. I think everybody wanted to, to win that game and everybody wanted to see Leeds win it but somehow, because of the you know the timing of the goal and, and who scored it, Bamford coming back, it almost felt a little like a win, um, winning in the circumstances. But I think you sort of saw in those 90 minutes everything that's been going on this season and the, the kind of difficult battle just to stay on the right side of the line, which they, they just about are, but it is a struggle. I think it, coming into this batch of three games, I think I predicted a, a sort of non-decisive four points where it wouldn't be a complete disaster. It wouldn't be... We're in the we're in the clear, and five points does essentially the same job. It leaves us feeling a bit. Ugh. Yeah, you you were right to exercise that caution. I was <laughs> Whereas wrong, you, I was wrong to be optimistic. But you know, I, I know it's easy to be wise after the event. But I nearly equipped when we were doing the preview for this last week. I was going to say now we're all nearly fit. We just need to see who breaks down against Brentford. But I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to say it because it sounds overly negative. Let's just enjoy it and 
long and, and there it was anyway. Yeah. yeah, that's that's how it is though. It, on the injury side, it is relentless, and it is also affecting some of the the biggest players and and some of the players who are in the team most most consistently. I think to, we we said we could see seven points coming from the week. Five points from the week is just about is good enough. I think it's it's passable. It was a very fine line between five points for the week and three points for the week. The late goal from Rafinha and the, the late goal from Bamford, which I think would would not have been passable at all. And six points over the bottom three feels to me like pretty useful breathing space. It's not a massive gap, and it's not a, a gap you can play with forever. But it it did need to be there, and I, and I think you just need to feel in these circumstances like you're still ticking over, and that you've that it's not slipping away. I mean, I. I've said right the way through that I think the crowd have been so patient with this. And I felt that again on Sunday. And I wouldn't have said that even in the second half when they were, you know, 2-1 down, it really didn't look like they were going to score. I said to somebody in the press box next to me with about 20 minutes to go, genuinely, the only way they're going to get anything out of this is a kind of scrappy last minute goal that comes from just sheer weight of pressure on on Brentford's defence because they weren't really cutting Brentford open and they weren't creating a, a great deal. But I didn't still. I didn't feel still like the crowd on mass were were about to go. But there was that lingering thought in your head of if they do lose this and if they do lose to Brentford, what is the reaction going to be and how are people going to feel? Because you you know that that patience isn't in. It's not limitless. Um, and eventually it it will run out if if things don't improve. Um, and I do think again like the Rafinha goal. I think that Bamford goal was a big one. I feel we're in a tough spot at the moment with not wanting to criticise them because we still. We still love this team and we still love Bielsa and everything he's done. So I think a lot of people probably like are in the same position I am where they will pretty much be quiet. <laughs> if we if we lose, I'll just kind of trudge out of the stadium and kind of meekly walk, wander back to the car and just think, oh no, and just dr- slowly dread it. Whereas in previous, under previous managers like Wise or someone or I think back to like the end of Blackwell or something where you were kind of, you were happy to stay behind and scream at the players <laughs> and tell them how useless they were. I, I sort of have have too many nice feelings <laughs> towards them to do that, even, that but, even when it's not going well but we've we've got reason to be confident in the system haven't we as yeah. well because we've seen three years or more of it working more often than not but it's funny it's interesting to get your take on it actually Michael because we had a, I mean I don't know if Phil's feeling particularly argumentative this week maybe that's what's causing all these kickoffs with the likes of Radrazani and, uh, and me as well because we had a, a very mild disagreement about how the crowd were feeling because I, I agree with Michael I tend to think it would have been there'd have been the grumble maybe a few boos if we'd have lost that. But by and large, people would have trudged off. And I and I think there's probably enough credit in the bank with this lot that that would be the prevailing mood over the course of the season. I think if we if the worst does happen and if we were to go down, it would still be accepted. No one's going to like it, but I think it would be accepted in a sort of a, a grumbly, quiet way rather than outright mutiny. I, I just don't see people ever turning on Bielsa. No, and I, the play, I and, the, and the players as a result. Well, yeah, that's not what I, you said to me on text, is it? No, I don't. I, I don't. You said they'll be booing pitchforks. The uh, pitchforks. I, I don't see them turning on Bielsa and, and the players specifically. I think they'll just be if it if it carries on general dissatisfaction with how it's going. But this is probably the most I feel like all of us have been able to see the bigger picture, which is that. It, it is, you know, still 15 games in and, and you are a long way into the season now, but that leaves a lot of points to to play for, a lot of games to play still. And you write about credit in the bank and I think that's why this season it, it has been so patient. And why, I mean, I can think of previous seasons where you've had late results or last minute goals and the reaction hasn't been quite as it, as it or it doesn't feel quite the same as it has been this season because, you know, right from the outset, there is this genuine will and desire to see it carry on going well. Under Bielsa, I think the difference with previous managers and previous squads 
is that because there was an absence of faith in them generally, it almost didn't matter. You know, even if you were nicking results here and there, I think the one the period that really jumps out to me is the, the back end of Grayson's time as manager, particularly where, you know, that game against Burnley after the defeat away at Barnsley, um, I think it was New Year's Eve down at Barnsley, and McCormack scored right at the death where Lee Grant almost threw the ball into his own net. And he felt as if Grayson was going to get sacked that day if they'd, if they'd not won the game. But even though they did win the game and there was that kind of, you know, little buzz afterwards, you still knew that there was that creeping death of this is not going to end well. You know, this is only a, a temporary reprieve. Whereas at the moment and, and owing to the last three years, there is a lot of trust in Bales and there is a lot of trust in, in the players. I don't think that changes the fact that they're finding it extremely hard this season and, and that there is, there is something that's gone out of the performances and, and has gone out of the games. There isn't quite the same verve and, and the same electricity and I was saying that that game captured the entire season. I think what it captures more than anything is the fact that putting it together over 90 minutes has been a massive challenge and, and it hasn't really happened at this stage. And just to get in on the WhatsApp front, I mean, you texted me. No, at, uh, come this, on, come on, come you, on. You, are gonna, you, you, you messaged me at halftime. This is going to be unbalanced because I know what my intention was when I sent yeah, this I, message. Yeah, I know what your intention was as well. You, but, you, you were know, not one to tempt feet. But, but, let, but let's fire up the bus and yeah, chuck me under it anyway. Just, just for fun. Um, it, it did say... I know it's only 1-0, but this is the most comfortable I've seen us and Brentford look like a you know, a, a newly promoted side, to which I said... What did I say? I said 1-0 is a dangerous score. Dangerous score. Thank that's, you. That's, that's really right. important yeah, to qualify. Yeah, no, I will say 2-1 to right. them felt more dangerous. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, but at did, that moment, did, but you know, you can't have chat at half-time and, and ignore the fact that there's still another 45 minutes to go, so you're, you're being unfair again. No, so that's... that's I, I, might, I might tweet you. you know, that's you know. totally true. I did reply simply saying, fuck off. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what it... That's what it said because we've we've had a bit of this through the the season and we've both. What, been, what did Radrazani say? You're we, better than this. We've both um, we've both been guilty of tempting fate, <laughs> but it does just go to show that again. I totally agreed at halftime. I thought that they're in really good position here, and they've and they've got control of this. And actually, that substitution when Cooper was injured, despite them needing to shuffle about four positions, when everybody was sitting saying, "Why don't you just put on Charlie Creswell?" It, it actually made Leeds better. And they played, they were more controlled because of it. They, they were more dominant because of it. And they looked like they had Brentford where, where they wanted them. But then from nowhere, and, and you know, in no small part due to the Phillips injury, it just kind of dissipates in the second half. And suddenly Brentford are on top and Leeds are struggling to create. And it feels like a, you know, a, a pretty problematic situation, which is heading for a, for a bad result. You know, that is the story of the season. It just hasn't been there in its entirety. Do you think we shot ourselves in the foot though in terms of like you look at the, the errors that were committed in, in the build-up to both goals because we had the one over in the, the northwest corner. Dallas didn't show it out and then you've got the other one where Furpo nutmegged um, Forshaw in midfield for the second goal. I think you also had the problem of Phillips trying hard to run that injury off and then finding that he couldn't. Um, and you know, Bielsa did say afterwards, I, I do think that did make a difference to the structure. And as soon as the goal went in, Phillips was off substitution was made and and I you know I totally see why he was trying to trying to run through it, but yeah it was it was fairly weak and soft down the left for the first goal, the second goal from Canos really good finish but it did feel as if a lot of people were marking fresh air and it's one of those baffling periods where you you look at it and think why is this suddenly happening? Do it reminded me of the Derby playoff. Like yeah. Just that little spell. So it's just very, like the derby play where, where, you, where you thought we've completely lost control here. Heads have gone, and anything could happen now. After we were looked so in control, yeah. towards the back end of the first half, they've just lost their shit. Very much so, um, and for no real reason apart from obviously the the issue with Phillips. But that doesn't kind of explain all of it in its entirety. That was that was a problem. But the the good thing is again that it wasn't a case of losing 
at 2-1 down, which in countless seasons, that game would have ended 2-1. And I know it's easy to say that, but it would have done. You know, we, we can think of seasons and teams who, who would have lost that game. Um, but you had Bamford on the bench, so it made a difference. And he was there when they needed him. And it was, it was an awkward chance that, you know, on his knee. But that, that is why you need an, an out-and-out centre-forward who, who does score goals. And as I say, it's just the, the mood coming out was just completely different to the mood going into, into injury time. And that, in a lot of ways, that's what sees you through a difficult season is when you can persist and you can make people feel like you're not heading for a, a sort of winter of, of discontent, you know, that you, you, you do have it still in you and you can dig those results out. I mean, seven points from nine would have been far better. Nine from nine would have been perfect. But actually, it did feel like a, a mega week with Rafinha digging that one out against Palace and then Bamford against Brentford. It's funny, isn't it, though? Um, the number of points we've dropped from winning positions this season has gone through the roof because it used to be that when Leeds got one in front, if we scored the first goal, we won a game. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that was always quite likely to change in the Premier League over time um, because it, the competition levels go up and Leeds were so dominant in the Championship that it was very hard for teams to get back into games when Leeds were, were in control of them. But yeah, they, they are just a, a little bit porous and, and far more flimsy, I think, than, than they have been previously under Bielsa but the big thing the big thing is the the attacking play it's having the same level of creativity that that is what and and you know same level of danger going forward that is what will keep them afloat just looking overall at like the the bigger picture that you you touched on before returning to that i think there's there's a huge amount of togetherness between if you look at you know the situation between boardroom players manager and fans but with the passing of time and then the breaking up of that promotion squad it's just starting to fray a little bit around the edges, isn't it? It's not it's not falling apart or anything like that. It's just there are just a few threads that just don't seem quite right and not in place. Well, clubs clubs always kind of move in stages and eras and chapters, and and there is a sense of this chapter coming to an end, whether that's Bielsa himself or just players who've been very involved. I, I think one of the lessons that will have to be learned about this season is that if Leeds do stay up and and reach next summer and, and think again about what to do for the Premier League. They're going to have to make some difficult decisions and they're, probably, they're going to have to be, I think, more active in the market next summer than they were um, the summer just gone. And actually, Radrazani said that in an interview not so long ago. You know, the, the summer just gone wasn't a, a big one in terms of expenditure or in terms of how sort of flamboyant leads were being. But if they stay up this season, then it sets them up to have, you know, a much bigger summer next year, which you would hope would be the kind of push towards towards Europe. But I know what you mean, and and kind of nothing nothing lasts forever. That's that's sort of how it is, and and that was always going to be the case. And you will see transition in the squad. You'll see it in the dugout at some stage. You'll see it in the boardroom. That's football, and that's life. But I think the the big thing with Bielsa is that you would you would never want it to go horribly sour. He doesn't deserve for it to go horribly sour. And I think even though the football hasn't been great this season, and I think even though he has made mistakes in games tactically, um, I think in particularly of of Brighton. The job that has been done over three years is far too good for it to descend into the usual sort of attacks that happen when, when managers struggle or when, when the teams they're managing get out of form. He's, he's, he deserves more than that. He's earned more than that. And again, I think you can feel that in the crowd. I think you can you can feel that people know that. We'll talk about the, the 49ers stuff, um, as we mentioned before. We'll do that in part two. But isn't it funny how all three of the key boardroom figures at Leeds have been in the public eye in one way or another? over this last kind of week or two, how it's all come together at the same time with Kinnear's programme notes, two lots of Otter's madness in the director's box towards the end of that game. I mean, I went absolutely bananas too. It's just, and we know what Victor's like, but you don't always see it from your average sporting director, do you? The, uh, the kind of histrionics that we got, we got there. 
No, I think with hindsight, and we need a bit more sober about it. You look at it and you think it was it was probably well, I don't think probably it was an overly aggressive reaction, and and somebody in the crowd had been having a pop at him. I think particularly was it was it definitely a Leeds fan? Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it yeah. was, from what I was told anyway. But I'm sure that's right. He had to go back, and I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that director of football should be seen and not heard. I think they're they're entitled to have the say, and it's more difficult for somebody like Otter to have his say because to go back to the Brighton game. I was really actually quite impressed with what Graham Potter did afterwards about the booing from Brighton's crowd, where he wasn't ridiculous about it, but he, he was entitled to sit down and say, I'm not having that. You know, I just think that's really unfair. And if he's not entitled to say that, then he's got no right of reply at all. It's more difficult for Otter because he doesn't have press conferences afterwards and so on. And he can speak to the media, but, you know, it's not as if your director of football comes out every week um, chatting on. But I think, you know, that kind of reaction is a little bit over the top. And and what it does is it means that at full time, one minute you're focusing on Bamford and that great celebration, but then the next, the thing that's all over Twitter is, you know, Otter sort of remonstrating with this this fan. The thing about Otter is, I always feel, and I, you know, I, I, I do like him. I do actually rate the job that he does. I think he's a good director of football. I never fall into this camp of thinking that he has to be either a genius or, you know, a total abomination. I think he does a good job and I think his job is much wider than just transfers. But unfortunately, everything focuses on transfers because that is the kind of public facing aspect of his job. And I do think he's forever in this position where anytime something goes well or goes wrong, there is judgment about, well, what's Alter's part in this being? And I know that he takes criticism personally and I know that he finds it difficult. And I know that his job is massively stressful. And, and also, I mean, him acting like that in the, pre- in the director's box is not anything new. You know, like it's been going on for, for ages and ages. And you've seen people, you've seen Kinnear comment on it himself. But I think the stress of the job is very easy to underestimate. It's an incredibly mm. difficult job. Transfers are, once you start to understand how they work and how they're, they're done and the pressure of them. I think if I was a director of football, I would be stressed by every single signing I made because every signing that comes through the door, you'd be thinking, is this going to work? And if it doesn't work, whose head's it going to drop on? Oh, it's a test of your ability almost, isn't it? It's a reflection, of, of, or people see it as a reflection uh, of your ability. Of course it is. And to go back to what Howard Wilkinson used to say, you are not going to win with every transfer. And the likelihood is you're not going to win with much more than 50%, maybe less. And he has made poor signings or signings that haven't worked. He's also made some very, very good signings. I kind of feel like I'm in the middle of thinking, it's fine. You know, it's not, I, I don't think... The criticism of Otter is justified, which isn't to say that there shouldn't be any, because everybody's open to it. You know, that's that's how it, how it is. So, to my mind, Sunday was over the top, and it's it's not it's not a good look. But I think you you probably have to understand how much strain people are under. Do we know what was actually said to him? Because it was it was a very very strong reaction, as if maybe it was something quite personal or more, more so than just maybe criticizing his job. I don't know. He seemed he seemed absolutely livid about it. From what I was told, it was something to do with transfers. And people who were there and, and said they overheard what was said, it was something to do with, you know, you're going to have to sort this out in January, something like that, you know. But I'm not exactly sure, but that, that seems to be the general idea. And I think, I, I mean, it's, it's the rush of blood, isn't it, of Bamford scoring in the last minute. You hear this and then suddenly you score and the crowd goes up like that and, and everybody, everybody sort of reacts. I think it does, though. It just runs the risk of making it look like, you know, people are, are under pressure. But he is under pressure and it is a, it is a tough, tough job. I, I, I can't think, actually, of many jobs in football that I would like less. I mean, I can say quite openly that my behaviour after that goal was embarrassing as well. <laughs> as, yeah. a, as, a, as a grown, I, as a grown man. <laughs> I think, I think, in the same way as 
you know that that applies to all of us when we're we're in the in the crowd as supporters. It's different, you know. I've had moments in the press box where we've kind of celebrated goals. You're not really supposed to do that, and it doesn't happen very often. But you know, it's very difficult when Hernandez bangs a goal in like that at Swansea, and you've been writing about this club for 15 years, and they've been going nowhere, and then suddenly there's the line, and and they're going to get over it. It's very hard not to not to feel that, but they. People just expect different things of you and, and depending on the position that you're in. I think it's the arguing with your own fans aspect that's problematic about this. When he's been going mad, smashing up TVs or giving stick to opposition directors or whatever. Because I think that was pe- that was the initial thought when people saw him going mad in there that he was having a pop at, I don't know, someone from Brentford. And everyone went, ah, oh, brilliant. And everyone went, oh, fine. <laughs> but when it's, and I think having come off the back of the years of, of infighting of Bates and GFH and Chilino, it feels like we've had a nice period where everyone has more or less got on. And so to have that kind of thing going on, even though it's one isolated incident, is I, it, I don't know, it's kind of a little bit dispirited in some ways. It, it is a bit, and I think it, it sums up the, the kind of mood at the moment. But I've never felt like players, managers and owners and directors of football should have to sit quietly while things are coming at them that they, they don't like without responding I always think Cooper's quite good with it on Twitter you know he doesn't he just owns it doesn't he he doesn't go over the top and he doesn't do it in a way which is going to hideously upset people but I'm sure he tweeted about Halloween something about you know I think the exact words were not a great performance today but good results who gives a shit and somebody replied saying well we do you know we care because he didn't play well enough and Cooper just replied saying something like well you must be a laugh at parties you know this this sort of thing and I, I, I think that's fair enough I think that's fair enough. We'll, we'll get on to this, but I think it's fair enough that if we write something about the 49ers, Radrazani has his say. I mean, that that's the name of the game and, and I have no problem with that at all. I think with, with Orta on Sunday, there are kind of ways ways to do it. As I say, what his outlet would be for that, I don't really know because it's not as if he then comes down to the press conference and we say, well, you know, what what was going on? What what led to that? So it, it is a little bit more, more difficult. But I mean, certainly when, you know, I cover hearts, I would never expect to collar the manager and shout at him in the car park and, <laughs> and then worry about him having to go back well, you know, I'd, needs, I'd expect him to do that what the club needs is an in-house radio station where they can air all their own <laughs> grievances on a daily basis if that ever happens then you know that we really are in reverse gear back towards 2011 I would say I would point you back in the direction of the Victor Orta episode that we did when uh, Phil was off so it's early this year I think it was about May time wasn't it that um Victor came in and and, and, also, and you get a real insight into the kind of all the moving parts in a transfer which you were talking about there Phil like so so many different things when you've got you know agents calling you and clubs and all the rest of it his, and his phone's going non-stop and all that this is I mean this is covered in the piece but the very first interview that we did on The Athletic was with him and I'd never spoken to Arthur before not properly and you know we criticised him through the first season transfers and everything else We'd never spoken and he'd never responded to any of it. You know, he'd never had a, a bite of any of it. So it kind of left you thinking, well, is this fair or is it not? And actually, I'd like to know what he does and how he works and what the job's actually like. And once you got in there and you saw it all going on, you did sit there thinking, I don't know anything about this. You know, I really don't know enough about how a director of football works in order to properly understand their job. And yeah, I think, you know, it'd be worth revisiting that to... I, I suppose to appreciate what it must be like when, as an example, you have Harvey Barnes at your training ground and he's agreed to sign and he's picked a squad number and he's coming back on Monday to get the deal done. And then it all collapses via one WhatsApp message which says to you, I'm going to West Brom. And that was why Otto threw his phone at the wall, smashed a, a hole in it, because 
imagine the months of work that go into tracking barns and analysing them and working out whether you really want him, thinking you've got him, and then he's gone. And that, you know, for what it's worth, I think would have been a very good signing, even though he ended up going back to Leicester at the, the halfway point of the season and blah, blah, blah. Barnes is a very, very good player and a, a really good player to, to target. So it's the nuance, really, isn't it? And I, I do understand the stress that he's under. And just talking about people reacting to the crowd, uh, Penny, for your thoughts on Canos. <laughs> do you remember they, they talked about signing him a long, a long time ago? I think it might have been when Steve Evans was manager. It was certainly when Chilino was owner. Um, uh, if, you, if, <laughs> if you run into that corner and do that, people are going to react. People shouldn't react, but they do. And then the FA get involved. And it's like that time, it's kind of time-honoured tradition. I suppose it's probably fair to say that it wasn't quite like Morpé scoring that penalty and then walking up to the south stand as if to say, come and have a go, which just seemed like the most bizarre, you know, out, out of kind of out of context thing to do. Did you see Morpé down at... Uh, um... Southampton as well when he scored yes. that late equaliser. So he's kind of got form for it. Yes. Um, Canos, there was, there was niggle there. There was. And you know that, that was going to happen. But I just, I think there's, there's got to be responsibility on both sides. And you can't throw objects. But equally, there's no sense in celebrating in a way which is going to aggravate the crowd. And I thought actually Janssen played a bit of a blinder there by just picking him up and saying, listen, come on, get on with it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Now then, Phil, talk to us about 49ers Enterprises. Are they going to be taking us over? Because we're recording this in the wake of Articles being published uh, with details of this proposed deal on the Athletic. And Controversial articles, I heard. Radrazani has has bitten back. He's unhappy about something. So let's go back to the start of this and have a quick refresh about what the story actually is, and then we'll address the reaction to it if we can. So, so what is going on? Well, I don't think it will have come as a massive surprise to people to hear that the Forty ers are interested in in buying leads out in full. I mean, we spoke after the last share increase which was about a month ago now where they went up to 44% um, I was saying that the expectation is that they'll carry on with that they'll go beyond 50% they'll become majority shareholder but obviously without any clear indication of time scale or, or what the grand plan would be this story on Sunday was a story done predominantly by David Ornstein one of our reporters and, and also Matt Slater um, who does a, a, a lot of coverage of takeovers and the financial side of football and the story essentially is that the 49ers have an option to buy Leeds um, outright, which runs until January 2024 and would cost them in excess of, of £400 million. Pounds. That that would be pro rata. Um, so obviously they already own 44% of the club. It wouldn't be £400 million pounds plus for the remainder of the club, but it would be a substantial amount of money. It doesn't tell us anything we didn't know in the sense that that was, I think, the, the expectation we had of the 49ers anyway, but it does give you know, more precise details of particularly the timescale 
involved. That would be two years um, in this January coming up. And also the, the kind of finances behind it. And, and I think it, as it's kind of broader view, it does show you how the value of Leeds has, has gone up at such a steep rate since... But I, I wrote about this after the Brentford game. It was the, the gist of the, the match report. And I was looking back at the fact that 2014, Chilino paid a, an overall fee of £11 million to GFH for Leeds. And the reason it was so low was because Leeds were just not investable. You were buying the brand, but very little else. And the brand had been damaged by quite a lot of what had gone on. And there were, there were issues in the background and there were debts and, and everything else. And then move on to 2017 when, it has to be said, Chilino had made them a far more saleable asset. Uh, Rajasani paid uh, £45 million for the club at, at that point. And now you move on to the end of 2021 and you're finding out that the club are worth, you know, getting up towards half a billion pounds. And it gives you some idea of the of the transformation that they've gone through in the last two or three years. So if he's going to walk away with uh, a profit 10 times of, of what he put in, and let's, you know, not pretend that there's not, you know, investment along the way as well, but just in terms of pure share value, he's, he's multiplying it by 10. So why was he unhappy about this coming to light, do you think? Well, I think, first of all, the, the fact that the details are out there is not going to please anybody, particularly. The, they are confidential details between two parties in this sort of agreement, but that doesn't mean that, that journalists won't write about them. I think what I think what he was arguing about, and I have to say, I do, I do see to a degree where he's coming from with this, is that the tone of what we were writing and the way we are seeing this is very much, this is now, you know, the 49ers takeover coming down the track. And I think that's how, how a lot of us feel. But he was making the point that, that's not to say that he's looking for a quick exit. That's not necessarily to say that he's looking for an exit at all. There is also a clause, and we did write about this, but there's a clause in the contract which says that if Radrazani or his Acer group buy another club um, while they still retain control of Leeds, and, and you'll know that over the years Radrazani has spoken about building a kind of network of clubs, you know, Leeds with other feeder clubs or, or clubs elsewhere in Europe, Belgium, Portugal, Italy, wherever else. If that happens, then the deal can be voided. So there is still, you know, the scope for this to, to change. And and he also made the point that, you know, 2024 is two years down the line. So, you know, what could happen in that period? And I still think from from what he was saying on Twitter, he, he still seems to see this as very much a partnership between the two of them and a partnership going forward. And as I say, I, I can't say for certain when this will happen, you know, or when the, the 49ers will do it. But it seems to me significant that the fact that that, that is in agreement means that there's a, a very high chance that it will happen. You still feel it's inevitable? Well, it feels it. I mean, it, without sort of going into whether they're going to buy 100% or whether Radrazani might retain 10%, if you, if you speak to people in, in the industry, they'll say that when you have a 10% share of a club, you can almost own that if you have enough money to, to buy that. You can almost own it in a sort of fun way. There isn't a, that much risk. You don't have to fund the club to any great degree. It's there in the background, but the pressure on you when it comes to kind of operating the club and, and making the club do well isn't substantial. Once you start to climb up to 37, 44, your commitments are much bigger and the risk becomes much bigger. And it's only natural that people involved in it start to think, if I'm at that level of investment anyway, why don't I buy the club, own the club or the company? It doesn't have to be a football club, but you know, if, if in that situation in a company, why don't I buy this, own it and, and run it in my own way? And I wouldn't say that anybody at Ellen Road was given the impression when the, the 49ers went up to 44% that it wasn't going to carry on and it wasn't going to continue. I think all this does and all, all David and Matt's story shows you is that actually it is there in writing and there is a date where they could do it by and, and there is an option. On the issue of the club, uh, of him buying other clubs and that kind of voiding this deal, what's the thinking behind that? Because it feels odd that he could buy 
a Spanish second division team for a few million pounds and that would then invalidate a massive deal for, for Leeds United which is it, it feels like it's something very small could change the whole structure of, of the ownership of Leeds which seem, just seems an odd way of, of doing things Well if there was an attempt to create a stable of clubs it would suggest or it would certainly point to longer term commitment wouldn't it I mean my feeling with Radrizani has always been that if, if and when he goes from Leeds if he went back into football he would probably do it in Italy it would make sense. I mean, there are very good clubs to pick up in Belgium and Portugal, other places like that. But I, I kind of feel that if he was going to invest in a Belgian club, for example, it would be as part of the Leeds United stable. So connected clubs. And, and in that scenario, you have a completely different business model, don't you? You have not only the the pros of Leeds United, but also the liabilities of, of running a Premier League club, but you have the same at another club elsewhere. So the deal's completely different. You know, the deal's completely different and, and what is potentially on the table um, is is completely different. I think the one thing I didn't mention as well is that this deal with the 49ers does include Ellen Road, which is significant and is important to know because Leeds do have control of Ellen Road, but it is owned by a Radrazani company in Singapore. And I think that what this shows us is that there isn't going to be any quibbling over the ownership of the ground if the club do, does pass to the 49ers. You're not going to have a scenario where a third party owns it and there's any politics or quibbling over rent, the whole thing would shift. And that is significant because from 2004 onwards, right to the point where Radrazani bought Ellen Road back in, in 2017, it was, a, it was a massive complication and it was a proper albatross around the club's neck. One of the objections that Radrazani seemed to raise in the tweets when he responded, it was to you and Matt Slater, weren't you? You were both included in the tweets, was that it hadn't been looked at from both points of view. Is that, is that an ego thing or, or a business thing? Where's that coming from? Well, as I said previously, I think his feeling was that the way it was being perceived was that, right, the 49ers are moving in now and they're, they're going to they're gonna get this done. And I can understand if he's still, because he's always said that he doesn't want to go until Leeds are in Europe and that clearly isn't going to happen next season, as in Leeds aren't going to be playing in Europe next season if it is going to happen. FA Cup win, Phil? Well, there is that possibility. Yeah, do you know, that was... That was deeply negative for me. I'm, I'm very, I'm very sorry. But um, in terms of league position, it's not going to be until 23, 24 at the earliest. So I, I think that was kind of the kind of the view was that it was it, it was looking at what the 49ers' intentions might be, but not necessarily thinking that Radrazani himself might might have intentions still with the club, which I think he does. It's just that I think most of us feel that it does seem to be moving stateside. If Acer did have the means to fund the team, the development of the stadium, which has been brought to our attention now, would they be involved in the 49ers? Because logic, when you apply logic to this, you look at it, you would think that the 49ers have been brought in to be able to accelerate that side of things. And it's even been spoken about, particularly given that they have rebuilt their own stadium in Santa Clara. Well, definitely. I mean, the strange thing about this story is that it seems to me to be a big feather in Radrazani's cap, uh, cap in the sense that you've gone from having a club that were £45 million to buy in 2017 to a club who are now at proper Premier League price. And actually, the value of them on paper in that contract is higher than what was paid for Newcastle by by the Saudis. I think it, it will, go, will go beyond that. I don't think it's... I mean, there's no doubt at all that the 49ers were, were brought in to assist with this and, and to help with the project. There's no doubt that the 49ers would... would be able to bring finance, you you would think. But it's one of those scenarios where in the Premier League, you cannot pretend that you don't need massive money to um, compete with it at the, the top end. And not everybody has massive money, you know, limitless amounts of cash. You're now talking about 
oligarchs down at um, Chelsea, you're talking about state-controlled clubs, Manchester City, and I know there's this argument at, at Newcastle that it isn't this isn't the Saudi state that owns it; it's PIF. But you know, there's a lot of argument about who who actually has the has the influence, and if the Saudis do have any proper influence, and if the money is flowing through there, the, the, there is really tremendous wealth accessible to to the people who are running Newcastle, and in in that environment. To compete, you need huge sums of cash. And again, I don't think it's a slight on anybody. If it comes to the point where you say, look, we need help and we need support, and we need other people to, to do this, the stadium is going to be expensive. There's no question about that. They've spoken about wanting a new training ground. That will not be cheap to build either. Recruitment is really costly. Now, it's funny with the Anson back with, you know, with Brentford on Sunday, he was the, he was the kind of star player for, for a while at Leeds. And he, was the, he fell into the you know, protect at all costs category move on a few years and you're now talking about players like Phillips and Rafinha, the, the players you desperately don't want to, to lose, who in terms of value, you know, base value, are miles above where Janssen was with his valuation. It's just a completely different environment and a completely different world. And I think that thing people always say about not wanting to stand still in the Premier League, that's really what this partnership has all been about. You have other people getting involved and, and helping with it. And it does seem to work well. You know, they do seem to have a decent understanding that between the Radrazani side and the 49ers side, it does seem to be pretty productive. The one question I have though about where we are like currently at 44% is what's really in it for the 49ers? Because they've got a very large shareholding and therefore assuming that shareholders have to wonder right investment or when it comes to investing money in the club, don't know how this stuff works, you might have a better handle than I do. They're on the hook for, you know, 44% of it, aren't they? But they don't have the control. So why, why would they want to stay at 44%? Well, I don't think they would. And that's the point, you know, that's the kind of the, the point that we've all been, all been making. And, you know, there, there was kind of no, no objection really to, to that narrative when they moved up to 44 or when they moved to, to 37 back in January. Admittedly, when they did go to 37, we did an interview with Prague, with other, uh, Prague Marathi, with other journalists, and we sort of asked him, so what next? You know, are you going to move towards outright ownership? And Marathi never answers those questions. He never, he never, he never says yes or no. You know, he prefers to he's say... Very, he's very just, shrewd, isn't he? It just, yeah. Well, I mean, as you kind of expect, really, he just says, we'll see where we go and see how it happens. But what what this contract shows you is that that agreement is there if people want to do it. You know, it, it is potentially potentially on the cards. But as I was saying earlier, I think at 10%, you can sit for ever, really. You could sit indefinitely and just kind of let that roll. It doesn't seem plausible to me that once you start moving up to 44, that you don't have ambitions beyond that. And with Radrazani's beef with this and, and the, the sort of suggestion that both sides hadn't been perhaps covered equally. I have to check and ask, presumably the Acer side, Radrazani, had been approached for, for comment in the run-up to that being published. No, very much so, yeah. No, we, 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 we always would with a story like this and they and they didn't they didn't comment on it. But that doesn't change the fact that the, there is the tone of the pieces that are written and, and they can take a view on that. And clearly Radrazani didn't think that the tone of the piece um, on Tuesday, which was the sort of explainer of, of what was going on, Gave enough deference to the fact that he's still involved and and that he might have might have ambitions going further with the club, and I totally understand that. You know, I appreciate that that point of view, but I think it it still comes back to the fact that it's a valid point of discussion about where this is going because it is going to be a huge thing for the club. Um, and you know, at some point further down the line, I do think we'll see more movement. And the other question attached to this is about the timing. It's not just what's contained within the story, but but why now? People are going to be saying. Who's leaking this information? Why is the story coming to light now in December? Is it with an eye to the January transfer window? What what's what's the thing behind it? No, I don't I don't think so. I think it's just a case of the, the information came to us. 
it was broadly accurate. So we um, we published it. End of story. That shut it down then, didn't it? <laughs> and how do we feel then about the 49ers as owners? Um, it seems it, it seems to me actually at the moment, like as much as I'm really interested in that detail, it is a bit out there in the sense that there seem like there are more immediate things to, to kind of concentrate on, which is particularly the team and the results and, and the league position. Something tells me that we're not going to get to see the 49ers in their full glory until they're operating the club, you know, until it is their club to run. And then you will find out what they plan to do, how they see English football, what their ideas are for it, how much they understand Leeds, how much they're able to develop the club and, and enhance the club while kind of retaining the things that people who support Leeds would want them to to retain. It's kind of difficult to know at the moment. The, the one thing I think we can all say is that this has been the best period of ownership that Leeds have had since, well, I mean, it, it would be hard to even say 2000 onwards because even at that point with Ridsdale, Ridsdale was starting to do things with transfer fees and, and amortising them and, and you know, wages building up that were clearly going to cause a problem further down the line. You know, this feels like almost the best period of ownership since the Leslie Silver days when it was all kind of, you know, orderly and, and, and in place. And as I say, if you bump a club from £45 million in value to almost half a billion, you are doing a lot of things right. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part three now, and we come to you post-Bielsa. You broke off there between sections two and three, Phil, to go into the press conference. Uh, we know the contents of it now, but worth reflecting on uh, what's been said and the extensive injuries confirmed, but Bielsa's like, nah, it's fine, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, does. yeah, pretty much. Uh, we, we naturally got on to talking about January and the transfer window, and he did actually say, you know, some developments in January would be welcome, but he always caveats this by saying that anybody they sign has to be better than players that, that he already has. And I think whereas, you know, everybody kind of rolled their eyes when that used to get said, I always remember Grayson saying that in particular. I think with, with Bielsa, he, he, he kind of genuinely means it. You know, it's not, I don't think it's a way of deflecting from the fact that, that some transfer business would be helpful. I think he does honestly mean if, if he's signing players I don't want, then it's of, of, no, of no use to me. But let's be honest, and, and he makes the point as well that the winter window is not great and good players cost a lot of money. But they have injury problems again and it is just a recurring a recurring theme this season. I mean, there seem to be a lot of injuries in the Premier League generally and I do wonder how much strain has been put on different squads by the fact that there hasn't been any real break, not for your most elite players. You know, it's been so back-to-back because of COVID. But Sunday it was looking almost fully fit with the exception of Robin Cock. And okay, Strike was out, but, you know, Strike was very, very minor and I think we'll be back in this weekend. Um, 
now you have Phillips with a hamstring injury, you have Cooper with a hamstring injury, you have um, Bamford with a hamstring injury, you have Rodrigo with a heel problem, you have Cock who has been ill after his injury but is um, going to start training again this weekend but you know I don't think any chance at all of, of being involved. Down at Chelsea, although when Bielsa did get on to talking about him, he kind of said, you know, ideally he gets back up to speed in the 23s but I think even Bielsa can see that it might be that they have to, to kind of fast track him a little bit. Well, the twenty threes is the first team now, isn't it? Well, I mean that is a you know that is a massive wedge out the out the squad. It is, and you've only just got Bamford back, and he scores. I don't. We also wouldn't go into the severity of any of it. It was just the you know depends on the evolution. Bamford's, from what I understand, is the the least severe of the of the three. I don't think either Cooper's or Phillips is great, um, and I think they're going to be looking at fairly lengthy stretches. We also was saying it's the tendons. In the hamstrings rather than the muscle fibre, which uh, which is problematic. And I think what he was implying with that is that they, you know, they're, they're more difficult to heal them than just a sort of standard standard muscular strain. But I mean, even at full strength, you've got a hard game away at Chelsea. They, <laughs> they they really are. I mean, it just seems to be bouncing from week to week without key players. And the other thing about this is that he never ever ever uses injuries as an excuse or, or tries to and if you pin him try to pin him down on you know how does it affect the continuity as somebody did today you know what how do you feel about these constant injuries he just basically says you're reaching for the easiest excuse you know you're reaching for the, the first excuse you can find I mean I don't agree with that at all I, I do think that it makes it much more difficult for a coach if you don't have a fit Calvin Phillips and you don't have a fit Patrick Bamford you know this this squad is better with them in it but you know it's it, it's kind of kind of quite bullish in the end to say I understand there'll be pessimism out there because these are really difficult games these next four um, three of them in particular but you can either be fatalistic about this or you can be optimistic and he said I prefer to be optimistic and he also made the point that he always tries to to manage the squad in a way that can cover for problems but they clearly have problems (laughs) and you know um, thank god he's not on Twitter that's all I can say if he he wants to avoid pessimism well the, the, the only thing is what reaction is there going to be you know, to, to news like that. People, when when you're 16 points after 15 games and you, you're where you are in the table and you've, you know, Bamford has come on, scored uh, first points for two months and is now out again, okay, probably for a fairly short period. But Phillips is gone and everybody knows how critical Phillips is to the team. He's, he's going to be gone for a little while. It's very hard not to feel that a team who haven't really been performing at the peak are not going to be compromised again by the fact that these players are, are missing. I think... The one thing I like about Bielsa is that it's not a rush to make, you know, it's not a rush to find excuses before you've got in the ring and started throwing punches. But I definitely, definitely think that this is making his job considerably more difficult. And I do agree with him in the sense that we can only recruit players that are better than the ones we have. Because if we have nobody in there, then anybody is going to be better than nobody. I think we might have gotten to this um, after the Tottenham game. And I wrote after that game that this feels like a January where they are going to have to do something. You know, it really does feel, and I think more so now with Phillips out, but even back then, it was just the constant stream of absences that made you think this this could really bite at some point. You know, it could could become a problem. And we said that finding a better player than Phillips or Rafinha or even Bamford at this stage, you know, for, for the, the money is not impossible. I mean, Leeds probably wouldn't have the budget for it, but also getting them digging them out from somewhere um, and you know players who are not involved at the club so are available really really difficult but I don't think it's that difficult to improve on some of what's on the bench and I don't mean because they're not good players but because a lot of them are extremely untested and, and unproven and I do think pragmatism is the word I kind of keep keep using I think 
in these circumstances, they have to they have to be really serious about you know about realizing the opportunity that January gives them and making sure that they don't bypass it and find that in February or March they're really wishing they'd done something. I mean, I I said to you, centre centre midfield is an easy position to argue over. You know that that I to agree on. You know they they need one there, but I feel more and more that they need a centre forward as well. What why what makes you think that? Because it seems to me that he sees Rodrigo as a ten more than anything. Roberts played much better in the last two games and I do think that spell against Brentford was probably as good as we've seen from Roberts in ages. I mean, he might have had some flashes like that when I was um, away in hospital and then recovering. But prior to that in the Premier League, I've not really seen anything like that from him. But it's still that feeling of when Bamford isn't there, you really, really miss him and and Rodrigo doesn't seem like he's going to be the alternative. And there is Gilhart, who I think I would like to see used and would like to see minutes given to but again is is young and, and a lot of pressure to pile on him and I, I do feel like that is an area where with a little bit more in the way of options they could help themselves In terms of midfield and you might have him down as a number 10 but like we know that Bielsa is a long time admirer of like someone like John Swift at, at Reading who's coming into the final six months of his contract he's been in fine form in the championship is that the sort of signing you could see them making even if it's not necessarily him because there are some opportunities there and some value to be had surely it seems like the sort of option that could be done in the sort of price bracket that they would want to, to get into with the sort of player who Bielsa likes. He does like Swift in the same way as he liked Lewis O'Brien at Huddersfield. That some, I'm not sure I can really see that one getting going again because of you know the way it all was in the summer and the Brian has signed a new contract since. Uh, I suppose money talks and, and we'll see what, what happens and it's no secret at all that, that Bielsa really liked him. I think signings of that nature would be far more likely than, you know, big money signings, which which just are not kind of January fodder, really. It, it will, I think it will, it will all be a case of whether Bielsa feels that by enlisting players like that, it's an advantage to him. It seems to me that it would be. I mean, it seems, it seems easy enough to answer, but it, it would be his decision ultimately. With that in mind, have you got a sense of what they're feeling like in the club? Are they quite relaxed about this or is there a, a growing sense of tension, do you think? I don't know about tension, but I think with Phillips looking at a, a fairly lengthy spell out, I think they probably realise that they, they can't just go into January and say, you know, well, we'll do nothing in this window. It's totally different last year. By the time they got to January, they were so well positioned in the league and, and the form had been so dependable. They'd lost a lot of games, but they'd won a lot of games and they were scoring goals. I, I can't remember the point. I think post, post Leicester, really. Um, Leicester and Palace, where they lost 4-1 back-to-back. After that... It's hard to remember another time where it felt as if Leeds were in, in any danger of getting sucked in. Um, and even at that stage, they were early enough in the season. This is different. And I, I don't think they can afford to be complacent with this at all. I think they are going to have to think seriously about, about what is out there. As much as you say we might be shopping in that sort of particular ballpark when it comes to money, would you be surprised if they managed to pull a fairly biggish one out of the bag? Because it's, it's in their nature, isn't it, to find the money when they need to. And... There does tend to be this, uh, we spoke about Orta earlier on and his, his recruitment, this kind of shoot for the moon type approach sometimes towards transfers. Well, you'd never say never because, I mean, I don't think any of us saw Dan James coming until that week where it was like the dominoes falling. You had Ronaldo coming over from Juventus going to Old Trafford. Suddenly Dan James was available. Leeds had liked him for a long time. Bielsa in particular had liked him for a long time. So they found the money to do it and it wasn't cheap. You know, the negotiations started at about £20 million, went up to around about 25 nigh on the most expensive signing they've ever made, Leeds, and, and got the deal done. And they did have to find the money for that. And it's not to say that they wouldn't do the same next month. Uh, something just tells me that in this window, 
it might be easier for them to go for something a, a little bit lower level. But at this stage, it's very hard to know. I think we said right back at the start of this season, they'll skip January if they can. If they can skip January and they don't feel like they need to do anything, then it's a window they, they like to, to miss. But if circumstances change and they feel the urge, then it's it's got to be an option. Do you think we'll have learned from previous Januaries where we've we've kind of gone big on John Kevin Augustan and Kiko, who neither neither of whom had a lot of football behind them in the recent past? Well, it's, it's a good question because when Bielsa was asked about transfers, he, he said it's not just about players who are better than mine or as good as mine or, you know, players who fit. How many of these players are going to be playing at the moment and how many of them are going to be playing while not being fixtures at the club? I.e., how many are going to be playing regularly but actually are expendable, to which the answer is probably not very many or at least not, not for cheap or, or not for necessarily money that Leeds could, could afford. So yes, I, I I don't think I don't think it'll be a case of going into the window thinking we have to go big and we need to get something spectacular. I just think they've got to be sensible about finding something. I guess it's where someone like an O'Brien or a Swift would make more sense in some ways rather than going for a kind of a big name who's not playing for Bayern Munich or whoever. That's how that's how I see it. Yeah, and I think in the way that Conor Gallagher has actually turned out to be a really good player and a, a potentially really good signing, I think you have to be fairly philosophical and level-headed again. If it is players like O'Brien that, that Leeds decide to look at, it feels to me very much about making sure that the next six months are steady and stable. And I mean, ideally, you want to get players in who you can use beyond that as well. And it would make not a right lot of sense, really, to, to get to, to start being really short termist. But it is critical that they, that they stay up and critical that they do have the resources. What about someone like the ladder at Blackburn, Brereton Diaz, Chilean international? He's... Uh... Banging him in for fun since he became Chilean. Um, <laughs> he's again coming up towards the end of his contract. Maybe that's where there is the players who are currently playing and in good form, him and the ladder at Reading, Swift. Is there stuff to be done there, maybe? If, you, if you're going to look for another attacker. When I went to see Otto the first time and looked at his scouting database, it was massive. I mean, there were thousands of reports on different players. So they'll be well aware of what's out there. They'll know what's out there and, and they will you would think we'd have options. It'll depend on money always. But I find it hard to go along with the idea that there's nothing out there. I can't, I'm not sure I understood it in the summer in as much as I felt like they did need to do that. I felt like they did need to bring a centre mid in and, and they didn't. But I guess if at that point you have really, really strong confidence in your squad and you think it looks okay, perhaps you're willing to, to kind of take that, that risk. I think this time round, because Phillips is clearly out, that there is a lot of pressure on the squad and the results haven't been great so far. I don't think you have the same amount of freedom to just say, we don't really deal in the January window. There isn't really anything out there. We'll, we'll leave it. It might be that they don't find anything that they, that they really, really want or that they think is going to work for them. Is there an appetite though to, to pile more pressure on themselves by taking that approach? I don't think it's a case of one or the other. I, I do think they, they are starting to realise that they are going to have to look at it seriously. And I think if they want to look at it seriously, they'll try to find players that they that they can sign and and players who who will do them a, do them good. But I don't see them getting pushed into deals that Bielsa doesn't want. I, I just don't think that that will happen, and it would be pointless anyway because players that he doesn't want are not going to play. And also, they know that if they bring in players who are under a certain level of fitness, that it will take a, it take time beyond the end of January for them to get fit, which kind of defeats the object of signing in this particular window. That is to say, unless, they, of course, they get to January and they have actually accrued a decent number of points um, from the games that are coming up. And I think we are all making the assumption that this month is going to be really difficult and is going to leave them in potentially difficult waters. 
if they felt like the league position was fine, again, maybe it's a reason to to hold off. But I suspect that when January comes, they, they will need to need to move. With um, the upcoming games in mind, Chelsea and Man City, the two between now and the next time that we record. Just looking at Ch- Chelsea, if there is a good time to face them, we were saying this ourselves, weren't we, Michael, uh, earlier in the week, if there is a good time to face the team that is champions of Europe with a £1 billion squad or whatever, now is it? Because I'm just looking through their list of um, midfielders who are absent. Um, Loftus-Cheek is out, Kante, Kovacic, Jorginho, all potentially out. Big players for them, particularly Kante and Jorginho. I think... <laughs> I mean, will they all miss? Will they all miss Saturday's game? Is the other question. We'll need to find out from from Tuchel. But they are they are big players. I think if you were to ask somebody down at Chelsea, they might say this is not a bad time to be playing Leeds, given that there's no Phillips, there's no Bamford. You know, it kind of applies in both ways. These are seriously, seriously difficult games, and also Liverpool at Anfield on on Boxing Day. Arsenal at home home looks like you know the the sort of game you would try to target, although. You know, weirdly, they're kind of up in fifth Arsenal. They don't feel like they're up in fifth. You Such know, an unhappy a, club, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it just feels a bit soulless to me, Arsenal. It's kind of like it's not going anywhere and everybody knows it's not going anywhere. And yet I'm looking at the table and, and there they are, admittedly 10 points off Chelsea, which kind of accent, you know, kind of tells you what the gap is. And, and I think that gap is, is very, very real. But the other three games, particularly because Chelsea and City are away, so you, don't, you can't harness, harness the home crowd. And then, obviously, Liverpool being Liverpool, it um, it is a tough, tough run. It's funny, isn't it? Because you kind of hold Arsenal up as a bit of a warning from the future, if you like, sat in a, a 60,000 capacity stadium, not really doing much. And yet, like you say, still there just flirting with the uh, the Champions League places. And yet, it's, it always strikes me as quite unhappy and unsettled. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how football can do that, like post-Wenger, because they had that spell of success and there's just that long tail off with Wenger that they've never really replaced him. And they're just sort of trundling along now. I'd love to be where they are. And yet it does seem so unhappy. I think the lesson for Arsenal is that the football always has to be there. It doesn't really matter. It Obviously, commercially and financially makes a big difference, but it doesn't really matter how much you improve infrastructure and how much you improve the things that go on around the pitch rather than on it. If the football isn't great, and loads of owners have found this at Leeds, if the football isn't great or if the football isn't amounting to much, that's where the attention focuses. And, you know, that has been the case for Radrazani. The football was not great in his first season, so it was difficult. It's been exceptional since. So the things that go on round about, people find much easier to, to appreciate and, and understand. And if we do have the 49ers coming in, that is one thing that they'll have to register is that, you know, you do get judged on the, on the football. And, and what's happened at Arsenal is that the football is slackened there at precisely the time where expenditure has increased and your best teams have got considerably better and they've not kept pace. They've not kept pace and, and they've kept they've not kept pace to such an extent that I couldn't even guess now how much Arsenal would have to spend in one window to catch up with City or Chelsea or, or even Liverpool. It would be hundreds of millions and it's even for a club like them, it's not easy to find that money. In truth, Arsenal were a bit unlucky in that they were moving to a new stadium so they could financially compete with Man United and then Abramovich arrived with a yacht full of cash and started spending that and it was a bit like oh well that, we've not got that much and then, yeah Man City instantly catapulted themselves exactly. away, this right? is it yeah. the, the game has changed so much it really has yeah well so what is there for the taking for us over these next two games anything above zero points is good <laughs> yes we... uh, I would say so yeah. I would say so <laughs> it, you'd be totally partisan really it's, it's fine to hope for results and everybody will hope for results but I think it'd be totally partisan to say that you could look at Chelsea away or Manchester City away and think yeah Leeds, Leeds win I mean, it's funny, isn't it, though, that just every now and then 
You never, you never quite know. I mean, we know, but you never quite know. That's what that's what he was saying today, Bill. So he said, that's one of the things I love about football is that a game where you look weak and the team you're playing look better than you, you can go and win. And it did happen at City last season. I think the thing is to compare what was going on then to what was going on now. I don't think City were as good a team back then as, as they are now. And I think Leeds had this massive spring in their step all the time. Total confidence feels feels different now and they and they look badly exposed this weekend. Hmm. Well, are you, are you coming to me for the optimism and fortitude go on, that Bill spoke of? In there. No, I mean, we, we did speak on our show, didn't we? So there's no point in repeating and ourselves. That was, please, please go listen to that. Well, actually, <laughs> it, is, it is worth saying that we recorded that before we knew the, about the injuries as well. Didn't we? Yeah, that is true. We thought Phillips... We'd, we'd, we'd kind of heard some vague rumours that Phillips and Cooper might be out for a while but, and that Bamford might, but they weren't confirmed. And but, 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 but we were strangely neutral about it, weren't we? In the sense that if you go into games without any expectation, which... You know, it's probably a separate discussion and is quite dispiriting when it comes to framing the Premier League that you have to go into games thinking like this. But, you know, here we are. But if you get anything out of them, great, isn't it? As long as your expectations are zero, it's actually a good motto for life. Have no expectations and anything good that happens is a treat. I, I, I I think what won't surprise me on Monday or away at City is if actually City and Chelsea don't play as well and aren't as dominant as you'd naturally expect them to. I've seen that loads of times over the years where you go to a game where you think this is this is going to be mayhem, this is, this could be really damaging. And actually it doesn't work out like that. But what does tend to happen is that they edge the games regardless because they do have resources and they do have better players and they are better teams. And I think they're better teams than Leeds this season by a, a wider margin than they were last season. And that is one thing we should say about Leeds is that we are never as bad as we fear in the moments when we fear the worst. Mm, I'm sure I can think I of exceptions. I think that's this. just about true. Probably not scientifically true, but I think... There was a note, I, I you, you, you would have noticed yeah. the note of hesitation in my voice. But I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is pull something positive out of this because it would be dead easy to just sit here and say, we get nothing from these two games because it's the obvious outcome. What I'm trying to do is just you know foster a bit of hope or something to cling on to. You know, I mean, it's, and things happen in games, don't they? You know, we, first minute, someone could go, go around the keeper he brings he brings him down penalties to leads man sent off whatever you know yeah. strange things do happen in games don't they can, they can all of a sudden completely change the you know change the complexion of it but I, it, I, it's very hard to look at the, the likely players on the pitch for both sides it's very very difficult to argue that we're going to get anything from these I also feel like if you can get one win from these three games so if if Arsenal at home is the one and you go from 16 points to 19 points and you come out of Boxing Day on 19 points that is not bad. That's that's not bad. And I think you have to be realistic about the difficulty of these games and you have to kind of fall back into that mindset when you're in the position Leeds are in of thinking, if you can scramble anything from these, brilliant. But actually, there are absolutely key fixtures this season which Leeds have got to got to get into. And, you know, Chelsea away isn't really one of them. And there is the truth that three points from Arsenal, let's say, would give you one point per game across those three games. And that's pretty much what you need to stay up. And also, I think that would be enough to make sure that you had some breathing space over the bottom three still. So when you go into the games that come after Christmas, you know, you, you're not feeling them breathing down your neck. I think if the worst was to happen and, and all four of these games were not to go well, it's inconceivable that the gap won't close. And you really do not want to be tur- you know, hitting the turn of the year down at the bottom because you almost certainly finish the year in that, that kind of finish the season in that same sort of zone. So... It's an important period. This they've they've just got to dig in desperately. They've got to dig in desperately. They've they've got to they've got to play like they've always played them. The Bielsa, which is to be energetic and brave, and and to hope that something comes out the other side of it. 
And I think one thing we can say is that they are always brave. And that's probably the, the seed of the hope in all this, is that they will go out there and they'll give it a go. I don't think they've ever hidden this season. They were, they were terrible at Southampton, but I don't think, I just think that did not work. The system and the players who were chosen, everything else, it just did not come together. But, you know, the, the Rafinha goal, the Rodrigo goal um, against Wolves, the Bamford goal against Brentford, they've, they've, they have stuck in and, and they've, they've kept it going. And the reality is, if you're not having a great season and you don't do that, then you're likely to go down. But I do think that at every turn, they are trying their best to give themselves the best possible chance. It just is developing into one of those years. One of those years. A couple more shows to go for you before Christmas. We have next week's show where we'll preview Arsenal. Then we'll have a look at the Christmas period before that, the last one before uh, before Christmas. going to have uh, previews there of Liverpool and Aston Villa. And then we've got a week off between Christmas and New Year. The show is taking a break alongside all the other athletic um, football podcasts. So we'll look at the whole Christmas period at that point. So we will return next week at the Phil Hayes Show on Twitter. Subscribe at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. 33% off. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hayes Show.